Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which Jeremy Hardy walks a fine line between hectoring didacticism and endearing whimsy. This week, how to keep abreast of developments. Good evening. First, an apology. Last week, we referred to Janet Daly and David Starkey of the Moral Maze as vain, cold-hearted bigots. We now realise that some people might not know who they are, and we apologise if the reference was obscure. <laughs> now on with the programme, and please welcome two people you probably know better as Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. As you heard at the start of the programme, tonight's lecture is entitled How to Keep Abreast of Developments. Now, Debbie, you've not been with us for the past three weeks because you've been touring the country in some smart-ass play or other you've also written and directed, and you thought you'd punch back in here to do one more show before tarting off again. That's right, Jeremy. And doubtless you've got some humorous tales about landladies in theatrical digs. No, we've been in hotels, mostly. Good. <laughs> Good. You've been having a look at the week's news. Did anything in the broadsheets catch your eye? No, but I got a nasty paper cut from a magazine. <laughs> oh, there's nothing worse, is there? No, it's the shock more than anything. I know. Mm. <laughs> but on with the show. The first section of my guide to keeping abreast of developments is subtitled How to be up to speed on the latest technological breakthroughs. Of course, broadcasting itself involves state-of-the-art technology. It would be ludicrous to discuss modern technology without mentioning computers. Unfortunately, I can't at the moment because my printer's churned out 20 pages of asterisks and an envelope. <laughs> so I'll try to come back to it at the end of the programme. Recent scientific developments have left people asking whether technology is out of control. Dolly the Sheep has created a furore about the possibility of human cloning. Fundamentalist Christians in particular are appalled by the idea of growing a man from a single cell, although they're apparently quite happy with the idea of growing a woman from a single rib. <laughs> Until cloning became a big story, all the paranoia about science creating life was directed at assisted conception. The Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, or OFTOS as it is known, <laughs> I've been worried about sperm getting out of hand. <laughs> and doctors have become concerned about the kind of people who donate sperm for insemination purposes. They are troubled by the ethical issues in paying sperm donors. But if Richard Littlejohn gets paid for being what he is, why shouldn't anyone else? <laughs> but some doctors think genetic identity is important and are worried about the suitability of donors because they are mainly young students as if babies will be born with an overdeveloped need to keep traffic cones in their room. <laughs> Even with cloning, we will not end up with people who behave identically, because environment will be as important as it is with a person made from sperm and egg. You can inherit male pattern baldness from your mother's father, but not a tendency to fight in the First World War. <laughs> Of course, people go into the same line of work as their parents. Telly's full of presenters who have the same last name as presenters who are 25 to 30 years older. Genetics or, my boy's leaving university next month, perhaps he could come in for a chat, I wonder. <laughs> of course, cloning is different because the genetic information will be identical. So a clone will be like Michael Howard, an exact physical replica of a person, but in every other way completely different. <laughs> 
let's return to the subject of technophobia. I have to own up to a certain amount of it myself, and I also admit that I think it's class-related. Working-class people are keen to have all the latest high-tech equipment. Middle-class people like me can't handle anything that doesn't have an oak veneer. <laughs> In my youth, middle-class parents regarded the advent of colour television as the end of civilization. It was at the homes of working-class friends that I learned why Chelsea were called the Blues, and that they played on real grass of a glowing greenish tartan variety. I was always puzzled as to why they seemed to field twice as many players in colour. I learned that this was called ghosting, and marvelled at the way in which colour telly demonstrated the human spirit, with each player's spirit visibly running around after them. <laughs> I always felt deprived back at home watching the Virginian in every shade of newsprint. Nowadays, the people decrying the use of mobile phones are predominantly middle class. Some middle class people do use them, but only so they can tell someone they're on a train. <laughs> at which point, everyone else should lean forward and say, It's okay, friend. We're all on a train. <laughs> Business people increasingly use mobiles so that they can shout, I don't want excuses, tell him to get his arse in gear, to impress fellow passengers. <laughs> in reality, they are phoning the Chinese by the station, and what they're shouting is code for one sesame prawn toast and set meal A for two persons. <laughs> Working class people don't have a problem with cell phones. Pavements are full of people chatting away to friends who are not actually there, and the phones are so small now, you can't tell whether they're using one or being cared for in the community. <laughs> And this is very intimidating to middle-class people who are convinced that any high street within Iceland is quite a rough neighbourhood these days. <laughs> Most middle-class people are still coming to terms with normal phones, believing that so long as you speak loudly and clearly, you shouldn't really need a telephone at all. <laughs> and they're terrified of answering machines. Here is a typical outgoing message recorded by an upper-middle-class person. through to one of those blessed answering thingies. I do apologise. <laughs> they really are the most confounded things, I know. If you're anything like me, you'll just hang up. I simply can't stand talking to a machine. It makes one wonder where we're all going. I have a dishwasher, but I've never used it. <laughs> I just don't believe they really get things properly clean. <laughs> Lower middle class people dislike answering machines equally, but the reason in their case is that they are actually frightened of them. Their deference to machinery is such that they would never dare to record an outgoing message different from the one suggested in the manual, <laughs> which they record as though it were the most important and terrifying speech of their life. Uh, hello? Uh, this is the... Your name here, household. <laughs> I am afraid. I am afraid that none of us can get to the phone right now, but if you leave a shirt massage after the beep, giving your name and number and the time you rang, one of us will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. Press stop. <laughs> oh, f***! <laughs> to some extent, technophobia is clearly justified. Technology threatens to destroy us, as anyone who has attempted suicide after trying to use the Windows 95 help menu will testify. <laughs> but how likely is it that we might still blow up the world ourselves? That depends whether we're on the British Gas 2-star or 3-star service plan. <laughs> 
We are now no longer quite so afraid that we're all going to die in a nuclear war. But are we right to feel so confident? The Eastern Bloc has collapsed, but former Soviet weaponry is now freely available to anyone with cash. You can probably get nuclear missiles by mail order from those gun magazines like Shooting for Nutters and Carnage Enthusiast. <laughs> there are so many spare nukes in the world that some scientists even advocate arming ourselves against natural destruction from space using smart weapons to take out asteroids. I'd be happy if there was a smart weapon that could take out hemorrhoids and not leave me standing. <laughs> the destruction of the Earth by an asteroid is highly improbable. It's about as likely as Sir James Goldsmith facing up to the fact that nobody likes him. <laughs> so what about the threat to Earth from aliens or other villains of the sci-fi type? Will they really sound like this? You poor fools! Your puny weapons are no match for me! <laughs> One would hope that an alien civilization capable of destroying ours would have developed a decongestant that really works without causing drowsiness. But it is our shared perception that our enemies from other galaxies will be heavily bronchial. Anyone with such severe breathing problems will probably be defeated by an asthma attack as soon as they get within a few light years of our atmosphere. <laughs> When it comes to pollution, we're always told that we are each personally to blame. It is said that humankind has a love affair with the car. I don't believe Jeremy Clarkson is in love with cars. I think he just uses them for one thing. <laughs> the film Crash postulated that some people are sexually aroused by road accidents, a sick distortion of the fact that most of us have a healthy, morbid fascination with road accidents. But I am getting a bit tired of a government which is in the pocket of hauliers, contractors and oil companies accusing us of a bias toward roads. The media back them up by interviewing the public rather selectively about the subject of car use. Here is our transport correspondent, Debbie Isaac. Yes, thank you, Jeremy. I conducted a number of interviews earlier which show that people are absolutely obsessed with driving as much as possible. Here's a man filling up at the pumps. Um, can you tell me, the petrol you're putting in your car, will you be using it as fuel for driving? Yes. You wouldn't consider just filling your petrol tank, abandoning the car and taking a bus? <laughs> no. Well, it does seem as though this man, at least, is ideologically opposed to an integrated and well-funded public transport system. Hey. Let me just run over to the road and stop this driver. Hello, could I just stop you? I see you're driving. What do you think of public transport? Personally, I'm against it. Now, can you hop in and tell me where to, love? Because I'm holding up the traffic. Oh! Can you take me to the motor show, then? Well, I've been at the Ideal Car Exhibition for two hours. The place is absolutely jammed with cars, and not one of them has moved an inch since I got here. <laughs> the air is so foul with the stench of men's toiletries that I can hardly breathe. I've put to people the suggestion that we should all just stay at home all the time, and so far I haven't been able to find anyone who agrees. <laughs> My next stop is somewhere I'll surely find someone who's prepared to give up driving and take an individual decision to breathe less so that there's more air left for the rest of us. <laughs> So there we are. No matter how much the government would love us all to do our bit for the planet, we're all just bastards. <laughs> Debbie's rather slanted report brings me to the next part of my guide to keeping abreast of developments. How to see through bias in the media. It is, of course, impossible to be entirely impartial when printing or broadcasting news. 
All words have connotations. One's choice of words is always subjective, and I'm always right. <laughs> Nonetheless, like all broadcasters, I have to be scrupulously careful that all the opinions I voice are backed up on another disc. Bias can be extremely subtle or extremely blatant. Let us listen to how industrial action tends to be reported and then retell the same story from a slightly different perspective. More misery for commuters today, as last-minute hopes of an 11th-hour compromise in the bus dispute were dashed. A new management offer, which involves restructured working conditions, with employees enjoying increased hours and reduced safety in return for a 100% increase in boardroom pay, was narrowly rejected in a so-called ballot of the workforce. <laughs> now let's hear a fair and impartial interpretation of the same event. Good news today for anarcho-syndicalists and all those interested in the class struggle. <laughs> Victory to the working class. And now the weather. <laughs> and we always hear about misery for commuters. No matter what group of workers are on strike, it's misery for commuters. It could be the sewage workers out. And the news will say more misery for commuters as they arrive home to find their jobbies are not being sorted out properly. <laughs> it's always assumed by news editors that viewers and listeners regard strikes as bad news. Perhaps the most worrying feature of broadcast news is the way that some opinions are reported as indisputable facts. But at least the views of politicians are sometimes challenged when it comes to the reporting of law and order. The views of the police are presented as though they are people who habitually tell the truth. <laughs> Their version of events is never challenged. Riots are described as copycat. Riots in other countries appear on the news as spontaneous displays of hot-bloodedness brought on by an intemperate climate. But a riot here is called copycat, to imply that there was no reason for it. Youngsters just saw some older boys rioting and thought it was pretty clever and smart. <laughs> so a baton charge is a way of ticking them off. <laughs> It would be all right if journalists applied the same approach to everyone equally. When they're asking a minister about police provocation and he says it would be wrong for him to comment at this stage, they could say, what's the matter? Cat's got your tongue? <laughs> Policemen can tell us anything they like and get away with it. Despite their general lack of success in detection, they are constantly telling us that they have foiled something. Some arms are found or someone is arrested and then the police speculate wildly about all the things that might otherwise have happened. Other news. After the discovery of explosives at a flat in Sturchley, police believe they have averted an attempt to blow up Buckingham Palace. Anti-terrorist officers searching the flat found an envelope on which was stuck a small picture of the Queen in profile on a brown background. <laughs> it is believed that the picture would have been used to identify the Queen and that the perforated edges of the picture were to be used to saw through the railings of Buckingham Palace <laughs> in order to allow an invisible rocket-launching tank to enter the parade ground and attack the room where the Queen has her breakfast using a porridge-seeking missile of a kind someone might only be days from inventing. When it comes to royalty, any pretense of impartiality on the news is abandoned. News editors never question whether the fact that Her Majesty is in another country walking around and smiling is deserving of a ten-minute chunk on the news. They never question whether the entire nation is glued to their set for the thousandth birthday of the Queen Mum. And they never question the role of the monarch in the Constitution. Try to imagine a newsreader reporting the state opening of Parliament thus.
There was major traffic disruption in central London today when a group calling themselves the Royal Family staged a demonstration <laughs> to demand a say in constitutional affairs. After tense negotiations between the Sergeant at Arms and Black Rod, the group's leader, who calls herself the Queen, has been allowed to enter Parliament, where she is announcing policies believed to be drafted by the government, the political wing of the British Army. <laughs> the woman is thought to be descended from the dictator Henry VIII, and last Christmas demanded that a message be broadcast on TV and radio. She is also believed to have links with a German monarchist group called the Battenberg Dynasty who launched a number of attacks on civilian and military targets between 1914 and 1918. When it comes to the reporting of war, correspondents reflect a prejudice that foreigners are strange people who are always fighting each other for no apparent reason. Expressions like tit-for-tat and tribalism are used to cover the fact that reporters can't make head nor tail of what's going on. <laughs> tit-for-tat is a puerile colloquialism and implies that a conflict is just a petty squabble and anyway, no, 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 no. And it obscures the real causes of the situation because viewers hear tit-for-tat and think of Elizabeth Hurley. <laughs> and tribalism implies that these people should never have been given independence in the first place because they don't wear neckties. <laughs> so Britain may have to go in, although Britain usually stays out and takes on a limited role of observing and selling weapons. As for the quality of information given by war reporters, the fact that a journalist is wearing a flak jacket and competing with the rattle of gunfire just means that he's there. It doesn't mean he knows anything. You wouldn't expect a hospital radio DJ to be able to carry out a heart transplant. <laughs> and if a war correspondent did file a report detailing the centuries of colonialism that led to that day's massacre, there'd be no room in the news for the five well-wishers staging a vigil outside Clarence House to hear news of the Queen Mother's bowels. <laughs> Before we leave the subject of media bias, let's carry out a simple exercise in which Debbie gives us some examples of popular reporting clichés and Gordon translates. Joining us from Westminster is our chief political correspondent. Forgotten what Big Ben looks like? Here it is, with a man in a coat in the foreground. <laughs> Here is our court correspondent. Here's one of the very few people in the country who still gives a toss about the royals. <laughs> a humanitarian disaster? A civil war that's too complicated to go into now. Government's health reforms. Humanitarian disaster. <laughs> Chief inspector of schools. Failed teacher. <laughs> and finally. And now some insanely inconsequential shite. <laughs> that's all from me. Have a very good evening. I want more presenting jobs. Let us now move on to the next part of my guide to... Actually, I do want more presenting jobs. I know. <laughs> Let's move on to the next part of my guide to keeping abreast of the latest developments, how to be informed about popular music hits of the day. Those of you listening on wooden high-fidelity equipment may be hoping that I'm about to answer the question, what is Britpop? But very simply, it is British popular contemporary music. Whoever coined the phrase was probably inspired by the catchy title of the Brit Awards, which were renamed because they weren't doing too well with the name Her Majesty the Queen's National Record and Tape Outstanding Achievement Gold Medal for Singing Loudly and Clearly Awards. <laughs> I often wonder what people in Northern Ireland make of an awards ceremony called the Brits, and whether they expect categories like Best Attack on Unarmed Civilians. <laughs> but as I asked before, what is Britpop? Broadly speaking, to qualify as Britpop, bands must have a one-word name with no the. 
like Oasis, Pulp, Blur, Dodgy, Sleeper, Lush, Ash or Cast. So if you have a young niece or nephew who likes Britpop and you want to be able to buy them a birthday present without embarrassment, simply walk into the gramophone shop, say any single word and hope that it also happens to be the name of the band. <laughs> of course, the term Britpop was invented by journalists and refers almost exclusively to English music. The very splendid Manic Street Peaches have until recently been stigmatised for being Welsh, a whole nation being made to pay for the crimes of Max Boyce. <laughs> but in business, Britain must be packaged as a single, united country. Hence the rather optimistic new expression, Cool Britannia. But the British will never be cool. The best we can hope for is to be very mild for the time of year. <laughs> we have some very good bands, but we also allow Robson and Jerome to go about their business without being savagely beaten. <laughs> We have a handful of fashion designers, but most have gone to France. And outside of tiny enclaves in major cities, most British people dressed with all the style and panache of Canadians. <laughs> outside London or Manchester, British men wear checked shirts and moustaches and imagine it makes them look heterosexual. <laughs> but this has not stopped politicians and business people doing everything possible to market Cool Britannia and the media are determined not to miss the boat. Swinging London, yes, it's the 90s and everyone's tuning in to the sound of a brand new craze. It's called pop music and it seems set to become the number one fave with the teens. With the economy booming for a while and British electrical goods not quite as badly made as they used to be, people are smiling again and shaking off wartime austerity. Here are some teens sitting outside a continental-style cafe. The days of the lager louts are over. These kids can have a good time drinking fizzy lemonade. And these days you don't have to go to Glasgow for body piercing. The girls today all want to be like Ulrika Johnson and get as many studs stuck into them as possible. But what's this new street fashion? Sleeping bags? No thanks. I'll stick to my trousers. And here's an old fella who is sticking to his trousers. Whoops. <laughs> it's time to buy British. These chaps are even drinking British sherry. Property's booming and London's just teeming with youngsters looking for a home. And everyone's got something to sell. The big issue? Lucky Heather and these young lads in Piccadilly are even trying to sell their own bottoms. What will they think of next? <laughs> Of course, all politicians want to benefit from a popular feeling of optimism and Britishness. Pop bands are increasingly lining up behind Labour with hardly any support in the Conservatives. The Spice Girls' foray into politics was short-lived. Jerry, or naked stupid Tory Spice as she is known, <laughs> created a huge fuss by saying that Margaret Thatcher was the first Spice Girl. Old Spice, I suppose. <laughs> That's not a jibe about her age, it just means she stinks. When it became apparent that they were straining the nation's patience with them, the girls' Thatcherite wing quietened down and rumours started that one of them is actually Labour. But anyway, their fans are all children. It seems doubtful whether people who are old enough to vote, vote according to musical taste. Fans of Tory pop stars like Phil Collins probably vote Tory. Not because he's a Tory, but because they have an appalling lack of judgement. <laughs> I'm not sure whether Mick Jagger is still a Tory, although he does seem to have a lot of young research assistants. <laughs> but the youth vote is seen as labours for the taking. The Rock the Vote campaign, which involves music and comedy gigs at which the young are urged to register, has been accused of being a front for labour. Well, I sincerely hope it is. It would be depressing to think so much energy was expended in a genuine effort to get people to vote for anybody at all. 
Although Tony Blair has actually said that he would rather people voted Tory than that they didn't vote. It's a bit worrying when the leader of the Labour Party is the last person in the country to know that it is better that people hurl themselves into a pit of snakes than vote Conservative. <laughs> but the question arises of why Tony Blair is considered inspiring by young pop stars like Noel Gallagher. He doesn't appear to smoke, take drugs or even drink very much. One can't imagine him smashing up a hotel room. Although he might phone down to reception to complain that the trouser press isn't powerful enough. <laughs> But herein lies the truth about Britpop. Rock stars aren't outrageous or controversial anymore. Their remarks about drugs are qualified. Liam Gallagher got charged and cautioned over a small quantity of cocaine, but generally he is more preoccupied with wedding plans and moving house. One half expects to see tabloid headlines like My Conveyancing Hell and <laughs> Wonderwall Cavity Insulation. <laughs> Don't look back in Ikea. Modern pop stars enjoy everything in moderation. They lead comfortable, respectable lives. They don't want to overdose or choke to death on their own vomit. Then again, how anyone can listen to a Tony Blair speech without overdosing or choking on their own vomit, I don't know. <laughs> so that concludes my exhaustive survey of contemporary music. And there's just time to return to the subject of technology. I'm pleased to say we've got round our printer problems by simply taking Polaroids of the screen. So I'm now able to bring you my thoughts on computers. Eagle-eared listeners will already have gathered that this broadcast was written using Microsoft's Words for Humorists program. <laughs> if only everyone could see how beautifully laid out the scripts are, I wouldn't receive half a number of complaints. <laughs> Computers have their uses and save an enormous amount of time, which can then be devoted to pouring through manuals, crying, and trying to get through to the helpline for on-site service. <laughs> As a writer, I have to work on a computer. Most modern radios are simply not compatible with typewritten satire. <laughs> I actually have two computers, a desktop and a laptop. The laptop is a sure sign of age. Starting to use one corresponds with that time in life when you no longer sit up at the table to have your tea. You just have it on your lap. <laughs> oh, don't bother with a plate for me, dear. Just tip it on me trousers and I'll eat it with me fingers. <laughs> So, being a computer owner, I occasionally have to go to computer warehouses in the middle of vast trading estates. Incidentally, out-of-town shopping, cash and carries and hypermarkets increasingly mean that we no longer have facilities in our own neighbourhoods. In the foreseeable future, houses will not be built with toilets. Consumers will just have to drive to a trading estate and go to a world of shit. <laughs> In these giant computer outlets like PC World and Office World, I try to buy my software as quickly and discreetly as I can. But if I dither for a second, computer enthusiasts approach me, assuming me to be a kindred spirit. So, what do you think of the new trackball, then? Get away from me, I'm not like you. <laughs> but what alarms me is that people who don't need computers have them in their homes. Many people now have computers in their places of work. They have no choice about that, and that is where computers belong. They are a work thing. You wouldn't have a cement mixer in your spare room, would you? <laughs> Great little machine, isn't it? Do you want to see what it can do? <laughs> and one of the selling points of the multimedia family PC is that you can do your domestic family accounts on them. Does anybody actually do that? <laughs> Keep family accounts, a record of your domestic outgoings? What's the point? You spent it, you blew it, it's gone and it's never coming back. Why torture yourself? <laughs> Even if you are a Catholic, let it go. <laughs> 
Every month you earn a certain amount and you spend 20 to 30,000 pounds more than that amount. Does it matter whether it was toilet duck or honey nut loops? Do you need a machine to remind you you're profligate? What are you going to write on your first day of keeping domestic accounts? Right, that's £8.50 groceries and £1,499 on a typewriter that can do sums. <laughs> now, how does the bastard do sums? And we're invited to be impressed by CD-ROM, which enables us to read a book, which we couldn't do before. <laughs> and the art you can do is amazing. You go into the artwork bit and a little brush or pencil appears on the screen and you move it around with the mouse and do a little drawing or write in longhand and print it up and it looks for all the world as though you wrote on a piece of paper with a pencil. <laughs> People say computers are great for the kids. They're not great for the kids. I don't want my daughter sat upstairs in front of her computer all day. I want her downstairs watching videos with me where she should be. <laughs> and I know all teenagers want a computer of their own, but if they want to lock themselves in their rooms and damage their eyesight for hours on end, they don't need a computer to do it. <laughs> and they punish you computers. You make one mistake and a message flashes up. You have destroyed your backup files. No, I didn't. You did it, you bastard. <laughs> And my computer will even tell me you have performed an illegal operation. I thought, blimey, I've just carried out a backstreet abortion somewhere. <laughs> and the spell checker, you misspell philately by one letter. And the suggested alternative words are pineapple, trouser press, sodomy. <laughs> we were better off when the computer was a big thing with spools which filled a whole warehouse and was operated with a treadle. <laughs> Well, I think that's quite enough, but feel free to write to me here at Broadcasting House or send me a video of your child falling down and hurting himself, which I shall forward to Jeremy Beadle, who enjoys that sort of thing. <laughs> Until next week, good night. Jeremy Hardy's Speaks of the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. The newsreader was Peter Donaldson. The programme was recorded in front of a live audience and then digitally remastered to reduce the noise made by Plastic Max. The producer was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, leading the way in Skiffle. 